Intentional Living by John Maxwell, Chapter 3, Part 2 My Small Start My start in making a difference was surely small. It happened in June of 1969. In that month, I graduated from college, married my high school sweetheart, Margaret, and accepted my first position as the pastor of a tiny church in rural Indiana in a community called Hillham. The town had 11 houses, two garages, and one grocery store. Does that sound small enough? I had high hopes and unlimited energy. I was ready to help people, so I jumped in. The first service I held in Hillham had three people in attendance, and two of them were Margaret and me. I was not discouraged. I saw it as a challenge. I started doing what I could to help people in the community. I visited the sick, offered counseling, invited people to service, and taught messages to help people improve their lives. I did everything I knew how to do to add value to people. As I look back now, more than 45 years later, I recognize some things that can help you and encourage you to start small but believe big. 1. Start where you are. Parker Palmer, a philosopher and author, wrote, Our real freedom comes from being aware that we do not have to save the world. We must merely make a difference in the place where we live. That's what I tried to do. Hillham didn't look like much, but it was a great place to start the journey. It was in Hillham that I learned to value people, work hard, stay emotionally strong, solve problems, work well with others, and lead by example. It's where I took my first steps towards significance. In Hillham, in the poorest country in Indiana, while leading a congregation of conservative farmers who were far from wealthy, I became a person of abundance. A pivotal experience at Hillham occurred just few months after my arrival. Many of the people were struggling financially, so I sensed that they would benefit greatly from some teaching on stewardship the management of our time and talent. Being young and inexperienced, I wanted to find some resources to help me develop my teachings. I remember going to a bookstore in Bedford, Indiana to look for a help I needed. For two hours, I skimmed through dozens of books but found nothing written on this vital subject. Feelings of disappointment and panic filled my heart as I drove home empty-handed. What was I going to do? I had a sense of what I wanted to teach, but I didn't have the tools to communicate the lessons. When I shared my concerns with Margaret, we decided that if we couldn't find resources, we would create them ourselves. We began by looking for quotes on stewardship first in the Bible and then in other books. Remember, 
this was way before Google. After several days of reading and research, we had developed eight solid thoughts on the subject. That evening, we went into our garage and began painting poster boards, different colors, and writing the selected quotes on them. Eight posters later, we were ready to launch our first stewardship teaching. The next Sunday, we placed the freshly painted posters on the walls of our tiny church auditorium so that people could read them when they came to the service. I laugh out loud every time I think about this. Why? Because my sermon had a lot more passion than content, but I engaged the crowd with my eagerness as I walked around the auditorium, stopping at each poster and exhorting them to embrace the idea I explained. The posters looked well, homemade with their childlike gaudy colors and unprofessional quality. And because where we had placed them, people had to keep craning their necks to see them. You can bet everybody in the congregation was sore on Monday morning after having to look in their direction on that Sunday. The whole event was so basic, but the people talked about it for a long time in the most positive way. Once people understood God's principles about money, they started to give generously to the church and news about the people's faithful giving began to spread to other pastors in my denomination. They began asking me to share my program with them. Shamefully, I did not want to do that. I felt that if I kept the methods I developed to myself, my church would grow past other churches and my reputation would be elevated with that success. Even though I genuinely wanted to help people, I was also selfish and competitive. I'll tell you more about this in chapter 5. Sadly, for a couple of months, I chose not to share my approach with other pastors. Then one day, my eyes were opened. I did the math. If I kept my ideas to myself, I would help a hundred people. If I shared them with other pastors, I could potentially help thousands. Being generous would make a greater impact. A few weeks later, I freely gave my entire stewardship program to others, and when I did, I experienced my first feeling of abundance and, yes, significance. I felt good about myself. I was excited about what I had done for others, and most importantly, I felt that I would create more ideas because I had freely given away what I had to others instead of hoarding it for myself. It was at that moment that an image came to me that made it clear what God wanted me to be. A river, not a reservoir. Whatever I was giving, I was allowed to flow through me and pass on to others not hold on to for myself and i could do this because there would always be more god would never run out 
Perhaps you are in a Hillham experience right now. You don't have much. And what little you do possess, you're holding onto for dear life. Let go. You don't need a lot to give. It's a matter of heart and gratitude, not how much you have. Are you willing to give it a try? Mother Teresa said that some of the greatest work ever done have been performed from sick beds and in prison cells. Like her, you can be significant from wherever you are with whatever you have. Opportunity is always where you are. Be willing to start by giving of yourself. 2. Start with your one thing. I believe everybody has one thing they do better than anything else. The right place to start is with your one thing. I learned this from my dad. In fact, it was a Maxwell House rule when I was growing up. When we were kids, my dad's message to my brother, sister and me was to find your strength, your one thing and stay with it. He never encouraged us to try to do lots of different things. He wanted each of us to do one thing exceptionally well. A long-running joke in our family was that we felt sorry for multi-gifted people. How would they know which of their gifts to focus on? In my eyes, my father became an exceptional man not because he was exceptionally gifted, but because he found his one thing and stuck with it. He was a great encourager. As a result, he rose to way above average. He mastered the art of encouraging others and never departed from it. Excellence comes from consistency in using your strengths, and that has been consistent. Henry David Toro wrote, One is not born into this world to do everything, but to do something. I found my something in Hillham, communication. That was what I focused on. I poured myself into it. I spent hours crafting my messages. I went to see good communicators every chance I got. When I got started doing my one thing, I had no idea it would lead me to where I am today. Besides, even if I'd wanted to start big, I wasn't sophisticated enough to. So I just started with what I had and did it as well as I could. As a result, my ability multiplied. That came from working at it with consistency. I am where I am today not because I have done several big things, but because I have worked at communicating ever since my 20s. And this intentionality has compounded in my life. Investing in yourself is like taking a penny and doubling its value every day. If you did that for a month, how much would you end up with? A hundred dollars? A thousand dollars? A million dollars? not even close if you start with just a single penny and double it every day for 31 days you end up with 21 million four hundred and seventy four thousand eight hundred and thirty six point forty eight dollars 
personal growth is like that. It's like putting money in the significance bank. What's your one thing? What do you have the potential to do better than anything else? Do you have a sense of what that is? If not, then ask people who know you well or look at your history or take a personality or skills assessment to get clues. Don't think about what you can't do. Think about what you can do. There is always a starting line. You just need to find it. It's about beginning with what you have, not with what you don't have. Find your one thing and start developing it. 3. Start watching your words. Solomon, who was reputed to be the wisest man who ever lived, said, Words kill. Words give life. They are either poison or fruit. You choose. If you want to make a difference and live a life that matters, you need to embrace some words and reject others. We all have a running dialogue in our heads. What we say to ourselves either encourages us or discourages us. The words we need to embrace are positive words such as we, can, will, and yes. What do we need to eliminate? Me, can't, won't, and no. During the season of my life when I was getting my start in Hillham, I realized there were words I had to reject if I wanted to make my life count in a positive way. I brainstormed a list of words that I believed were holding me back and then went to my dictionary. As I found each negative word, I literally took a pair of scissors and cut it out. There were one word in particular that I hated. Quit. I cut that word and every variation of it out of each of my four dictionaries. My thesaurus wasn't safe either. When you're a public speaker, these books are like treasure troves. I use them often, but whenever I came across a page with a missing word, I was reminded of this symbolic act of positive thinking. It supported my intention to think positively and watch my words. Perhaps you don't want to cut up your books. Maybe you don't even have a dictionary because you do your research online. Instead, you can try doing what my longtime friend Diana Kokoska does. Recently, she told me about how she watches her words. I journal, which I could say every day. I'm very purposeful about writing in my journal and once a month or so I scan what I have written and look for words that are used over and over again and write them down. Then I ask, are the words I use moving me towards being a person I choose to be? Are they words that I would love my family to use? Several years ago, I saw the word frustration show up many times, so I changed it to fascination. No longer being frustrated, 
I began looking for opportunities where I could be fascinated with endless possibilities. I also no longer chose to use the word, but since that negates everything I have said before that word. I have eliminated try to, as Yoda says, chase no try. Yeah, but sent a message of an excuse or reason for not obtaining my goal. So, I let that one go as well. I wrote this as a law in bold in the course I teach. You can have reasons or results. You can't have both. Words have power. Diana recognized that and does something about it. No wonder she is such a positive person. What kinds of words do you use in your mind as you talk to yourself, out loud as you speak with others, and in your writing? Are they positive and encouraging? Do they encourage you to embrace a bigger vision? Or are they holding you back? Are they preventing you from doing small things that can ultimately make a big difference? Don't tell yourself that what you can do doesn't matter. It does. 4. Start by making small changes. When Mother Teresa wanted to start her work in Kolkata, she was asked what she must do to consider the work successful. I do not know what success will be, she replied, but if the missionaries of charity have brought joy to one unhappy home, made one innocent child from the street keep pure for Jesus, one dying person die in peace with God, don't you think it would be worthwhile offering everything for just that one? It's easy to forget that even someone who eventually did big things started out trying to make small changes. That's what I did in Hillham. I tried to make my sermons a little better each week. I tried to visit one more person who was sick, and I worked at shifting my time away from things I didn't do well, such as counseling and putting more time and energy into things I did well, like communicating and leading. Change can be difficult, but it becomes easier when you do it a little at a time. Nathaniel Brandon, who is widely considered to be the father of the self-esteem movement, created what he called the 5% practice. He recommended trying to change 5% a day by asking yourself a question. For example, if I were 5% more responsible today, what would I be able to do? This kind of thinking helps us to embrace incremental change. Trying to make a huge change overnight often creates fear, uncertainty, and resistance because the change appears unachievable. The idea of making small changes is less threatening and helps us overcome our hesitation and procrastination. In fact, this is how Toyota transformed from a middle of the pack automobile manufacturer to the largest in the world. 
every person employed by the company is taxed with finding ways to make tiny improvements to every process to get a performance. They understand that success is gained in inches at a time, not miles. Give it a try. What can you improve by some small percentage? Can you find a way to organize your decks to be more efficient? Can you slightly rearrange your calendar to get more out of your day? Can you become just a bit better at the most important tasks you do for work? Can you read a book to broaden your thinking ever so slightly? Any small change that makes you better is worth making because many small changes add up to major improvement over time.